coming up on The Medicine Podcast. This board certifies us as emergency medicine doctors. And I got a letter from them that said, hey, you know, due to misinformation, you know, if you post anything on social media, if you, if you speak out and say anything, there's a potential for you to lose your license. And I just thought to myself, misinformation? Isn't entire medicine misinformation? I mean, weren't we just doing lobotomies on people, you know, 50 years ago for depression? I mean, like in medicine, like you're, you're either a doctor or you're not. And if you are a doctor, let's debate. And I want to have active debate. And I want to debate it openly. And I want people to go with who they actually believe and trust based upon the debate. And so, in other words, it's sort of a second opinion. What in the world are we doing with politics and medicine? It's the absolute worst place for politics yeah. to be. You want to die? Be political in medicine, because that's a good setup for dying. Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi, and I'm sitting next to my favorite person on earth, person that I get to podcast with and live with and laugh with until our <laughs> stomachs hurt and faces hurt. What is going on, everybody? We are so excited to be back on the Medicine Podcast. A few months ago, we had just a serendipitous run-in uh, with what was clearly going to be a dear friend up in uh, Big Sur, Monterey era. We're having dinner or it might have been lunch looking over the beautiful coastline. And we're talking about Robert F. Candy Jr. and we're talking about all the things that we learned through the the pandemic and it was a very you know a uh, positive conversation around you know learning opportunities and and uh, we're, we're speaking quite loudly because uh it wasn't you know five minutes into the conversation that our guest today uh and his beautiful wife came over and we're like hey we can't help but you know overhear what you're having to say around rfk jr i think i was talking about mct oil yeah. as well <laughs> and uh just some kindred spirits and we we started some beautiful dialogue that ultimately ended with Man, we've got to get you to come on the podcast. So with uh, with months leading up to this and, and a lot of anticipation, really, really honored to have Dr. Alan Hopkins on the podcast. Welcome to The Medicine, my friend. Hey, yeah. Thanks so much for for having me. You know, I, I, uh, you know, I guess I hate to say we were listening in on the conversation. <laughs> I kept hearing all these medical terms being thrown around and I heard MCT oil and RFK Jr. And I was like, tell my wife, I was like, these guys know what they're talking about. This is <laughs> cool. That's kind of cool. We're always looking for, you know, people who value their health and they're looking for ways to, you know, to be healthier. So uh, I'm glad that we had a chance to, to, to meet and I was, you know, was honored to, to, to hear that you want to have me on the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, we are so happy to have you. It's it's an honor. And, and not only our, our love for health um, and our shared values there, but also your unique experience as an ER doc. And of course, we'll get into your background and training and, and everything. Um, but you have a really unique perspective on what happened over 2020 and beyond. And once we started talking uh, with you at the table, I, I, we pr must have talked at least for like 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, time sort of disappears, but it was clear, it became evident that like, oh my God, this guy has a unique story and a unique perspective. One that we've heard of, we've heard many podcasts and interviews with people who are in similar positions as you, you know, doctors who were at the beginning looking around and wondering like, wait, are we all like actually, like, are we all thinking here? Are we using our critical thinking skills? Like, can we slow down a second? Can we talk? Can we have open dialogue? We've heard of these interviews and these stories, but to meet someone and talk face to face with someone who's in your position, I just, I immediately had this intuitive nudge, like, 
I I want to talk to you. I want to I want to share your side of the, the story, so to speak, with our listeners um, because it's a valuable one and it's one that I, in my opinion, has been suppressed and censored over the last few years. And people need to hear from from folks like you um, who were on the ground. So I'm really excited to get into it with you. And yeah, we're just honored to have you on our show and really, you know, grateful that you're willing to share your side of the story because it's not easy to be the, you know, the guy that's saying like, wait, hold on, I don't agree. Yeah, well, I think that that, uh, you know, and that's the reason why I wanted to to come on is to give a voice to to people maybe that haven't had a voice. And, you know, there's been so much censorship that we've seen on a lot of the social media platforms. And, you know, people that have spoken up have paid a great price, whether losing their jobs uh, or or even worse, you know, having their board certifications taken away. Um, so a little bit about my background, if you want to sort of start yeah, with that. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm an emergency medicine uh, physician. I was trained at Loma Linda there in California. It's in Southern California. Uh, I graduated way back in 1999 from residency. So that was a long time ago. My wife and I have been married 28 years. And, uh, you know, sometimes at lunch, you know, we've, we've heard enough of each other back and forth. So we kind of, I, mean, I guess, listen to other people talk. So that's kind of how we got into your realm. But in emergency medicine, I, I noticed when I turned 40, I had this epiphany. You know, it was harder to, to keep muscle mass. It was much easier to, to, to put on belly fat. And uh, my wife and I both have been, you know, quite dedicated to, to health and to keeping in shape for each other and for our kids. And, you know, we have three boys we try to keep up with. And so it's one of those things we've always paid, you know, close attention to it. And so I did a fellowship in anti-aging medicine through A4M. Uh, and from there, I went on to do some consulting work for some advanced biomarker companies while still maintaining a job at the level one children's hospital and at the level one adult trauma hospital. Um, and then from there, you know, we sort of went through this, this period with, with COVID and it kind of opened my eyes a great deal because in medicine, one of the things we value is actually arguing with each other and disagreeing with each other. It's called a second opinion, you know, and so we're <laughs> always asking, you know, people to go get a second opinion if they're not happy with what they hear. And it's one of the things that makes medicine great. Um, and it actually leads to innovation too. You know, we start hearing about, oh, this person was doing this or this person's doing that. And so having an openness to, to trying new things and, um, and, uh, you know, the Hippocratic oath is always first do no harm. So as long as we're not doing harm, we're always out there looking to do something better, you know, to innovate. And, Medicine is about, you know, 40, 50 years behind everything else in innovation. There's a lot of dogma. There's a lot of things that are going on that we're doing, and we're not quite sure why we're doing it. It's just been doing it forever. So when, when COVID hit, um, I was kind of like everybody else. You know, we we're a little bit worried. We'd seen what had happened in Italy. We've seen that a lot of physicians had lost their lives and a lot of healthcare workers, nurses, and techs, and so on. And so it was something that for sure was real, and it was coming our way. And there was no way of stopping it. And I knew this because it's a respiratory virus. You know, we, we can't stop the flu every year. It just, it just keeps coming, right? And RSV and so on. So these are sort of things we experience every single year. We knew that it was, it was coming. And so I don't know how much you want me to go into sort of what I did at first. Uh, uh, okay, I'll go ahead. So, so at <laughs> first, of course, you know, we were we were kind of worried, you know, in terms of our family and, you know, and, and I didn't know how severe it would be. And of course, nobody knew it would really hit. And so I, I isolated myself from my family. I they moved over to a separate area of the house that we had. And uh, for two weeks, I kind of stayed over there because I was working a lot in the ER. 
And, uh, and I started seeing, you know, some people and, you know, some of them were sick and some of them were, you know, many weren't, weren't sick. And among all of those people were uh, an amazing amount of people that were asymptomatic who decided to come and get tested because they were worried, they were concerned, many, many young people. Um, and there was a contagion of fear. Yeah. <laughs> fear was greater than the COVID itself. Um, and if you think about it from just a logical sense, why would you go to an ER and sit in a waiting room for two, three hours when you have no symptoms and you feel great? Uh, when right. you know, potentially, if you sort of think about it, man, you know, maybe there's somebody here in the waiting room that's got COVID, you know? And so you're going to sit around and expose yourself to all the sick people. And there were so many people that were like that. They had no symptoms, but they had to get checked because they had to, they just had to know. And I think the contagion of fear was just from the very beginning, instead of having reasonable people come out and say, hey, you know, we've, we've looked at this and this certainly became clear by the fall of 2020. This was very much a disease that affected older people and people with lots of medical problems. So the younger you were, the better you did. And the less medical problems you had, of course, the better you did. But the contagion of fear was so amplified uh, that it, 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 to me, it, it really became out of control. And I think a lot of it had to do with politics. And I think we were, we, you know, we were in an election year that year. You know, if any of you turned on CNN or whatever, every single right. time you had the death counts every day, you know, the counts, counts, counts. And, it, you know, people are programmed by the media. And so you, you turn it on and, you know, they just over and over and over hit you. Yeah, it's literally called programming. Yeah. I mean, television is literally called programming yeah. and it's it's in every sense yeah. of the word. And, yeah. and, and I'm I'm with you and, and recall if you were a, an, a human being who was paying attention all you were you were like, I think I might be getting a sniffle. I think I might yeah. be getting a scratchy throat because it was everywhere. I remember when there was a couple of things that happened over the course of a couple of weeks, there was an NBA player, Rudy Gobert, who I believe who got um, COVID and they shut down all the NBA freaking Tom Hanks got COVID or something. And, and yep. then I was like, Oh my God, if Tom Hanks can get COVID, <laughs> we can all get COVID. <laughs> and right. then there was like, uh, I, I listened to an interview with Malcolm Gladwell, oh, very, wow. very, very intelligent human being and, and, Bill very, Simmons. and Bill Simmons. And they're rationally going through, you know, what potentially this could mean. And they're talking about, you know, what, what feels like doomsday. And I remember it yeah. was over the course of those couple of weeks where I, I quite literally felt fear in the air. Yeah. I remember that day. It was the last day that we, we were boxing up and, and packaging, um, our immune supplement, immune Intel HCC. We sold off out completely yeah. because everyone was like, Oh my gosh, immune, immune, immune. And so I was trying to find an open, post office and I was running around all around San Diego. And I, w I remember I was like, I don't know if I'm putting myself at risk here. It was in that first yeah. stretch of a couple weeks where, you know, uh, to play devil's advocate a little bit in the beginning, there was, there was this air of like, what is this thing? You know, I remember seeing videos from China or somewhere in Asia um, of people falling over on their faces said to have COVID. Now looking back, I, I can kind of put the pieces together where I'm like, that probably wasn't COVID now that we know more about it, right? Like people aren't just falling over on their faces before, you know, a certain thing rolled out. Um, but yeah, I remember that initial like two, three week stage where we were all like banded together. We were trying to help each other um, there because there was this air that it was thick. It was palpable, the, the fear. And in the beginning, no one really knew. And I'm curious, you know, at what point? Uh, well, I, I, I guess I'll start with, did you also feel that like, 
what is this thing like I'm explaining? Um, or if was it different? And then at what point did you kind of switch into like, wait, like this isn't what we maybe thought it was, or this isn't as bad as what we thought it was. Yeah, um, for sure. Like when it came out, um, you know, the first couple of weeks, uh, we were in full on respirators, you know, rep, or like, like, you know, kind of like the fireman where, you know, where the self-contained breathing apparatus, which made it extremely difficult to take care of people, by the way. I mean, that those are, those are rough. So I felt for, for everyone who had to go through that. Um, but again, after, you know, after a little while it became pretty clear that there were certain people at risk and certain people at work. Um, personally, I was never afraid of it other than just thinking, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what this is. And, you know, I have three kids, three boys, and they were all in school at the time. And I just was, you know, they were the number one priority for me is to try to make their lives as normal as possible because I didn't want them to to walk around afraid, especially by then we knew that this was not a disease that, that children were terribly affected in a negative way from. Sure, they could get it, but the kids that I were seeing, it was more like a cold, if, if anything at all. Their parents, you know, felt like more like the flu and older people, you know, could get the pneumonia. And so it's not to say I didn't see younger people getting pneumonia early on. You know, certainly there were cases like, but overall, this was a disease that had a graduated risk to it. And we didn't treat it like that. We weren't transparent with everyone about that. And so it kind of amplified the fear. So by the fall of 2020, it became quite apparent, you know, who was at risk and who wasn't. Um, and I remember the first case that I had was actually in March of 2020, uh, and it was a it was a very sort of a VIP person who was referred to me by their primary doctor saying, hey, I'm worried this guy has COVID. We didn't have testing at the time. There was no test for COVID. Um, and so uh, I said, hey, you know, send them on over. I said, I have a CAT scan. You know, we, we, will, we will run them through the CT scan of the chest. And I've read these radiology uh, reviews from China where they would show the actual pictures of what it looked like. It had a very characteristic pattern on a CAT scan. Mm. And so we would do a quick non-contrast CAT scan and looking at it, I would say, oh, yeah, this this looks like COVID. And so that was the first person that I diagnosed. I called up his primary care doctor. I said, so what are we going to do? Because that was the whole problem, right? Initially, like, what what do we do? And so this was very stimulating for me because I'm old, older, right? And so, I mean, I've seen a lot. And I'm like, hey, you know, I want to really look into what what could potentially work here. And I want to try some. I want to try something. I don't want to just sit there. And so uh, uh, his primary care doctor was very good said, hey, I've been reading about ivermectin, you know, in the, in some studies, it seems to, it seems to be particularly beneficial. And I said, that's great. I was like, cause it's, you know, it's a very safe medication. There's no harm in using it. You know, uh, I see no harm in using it for him. And uh, so we both agreed to start him on ivermectin and watch him, you know, closely and so on. We can do the pulse ox and all that. So uh, very early on, it was very difficult because the powers that be would not allow us to give anything for this. Um, and then to get into the hospital, you had to have a very low oxygen saturation. And so, um, and so that became very dangerous for people. I don't like danger. Danger is when you tell somebody, we can't do anything for you, come back when you're about to die. <laughs> and we had already seen from New York, you know, in the emergency room, I, I remember I saw something on social media very early on about an ER doctor. He was literally on his iPhone and he was like, guys, and he was talking to us, you know, his fellow colleagues. So guys, um, this is the weirdest disease. Like I'm literally seeing when we put these people on ventilators, they're dying. You know, it's at least an 80% fatality rate. And for us, we put people on ventilators to actually save them. You know, it, it actually helps them and they eventually get better. Um, that's why we do it. We don't do it to, you know, accelerate problems. 
And so he said, there's something going on. He was like, I'm not sure what it is, but do everything you can to prevent going on the ventilator. So we began using high flow oxygen, all this kind of stuff. Then some other doctors came out and said, hey, steroids seem to work. I'm using it in practice. You know, I use it about a weekend. It seems to prevent them from going on to the acceleration of pneumonia and so on. And these doctors began to get censored. And so when I started seeing the censorship around some of the things that I knew were, you know, potentially beneficial, and then we, we had the powers of B say, you can't do anything outside a, a, a formal study. So a research study initiated by a major institution, you can't do anything. So at all these people, just imagine, as you can remember, the, the fear, super intense, they come to the ER and what do we tell them? You got COVID and by the way, we can't do anything for you. Yeah. So well, it's like, okay. So this got me to really look into what can we do? You know, can we do zinc? You know, can we do zinc with quercetin to help zinc get into the cell? Can we do melatonin to help modulate the immune system? What can we do naturally? And so I, I went online and I remember looking around doing just Google searches. So if you go, um, if you go into Google Scholar, you can, you can put in the topic and it will bring out the research paper. And many of them are not hidden by a paywall. So you can actually read the actual research paper. And the very first person that I read was a fellow by the name of Peter McCullough. He had written over 600 peer-reviewed articles. And so he was a very well-published author. He wrote how we need to, we need to treat this. And he gave some options. You know, he said, Hey, this is what we're trying and, and so on. And so I thought, and at the time I didn't know, you know, I mean, Peter McCullough, this is very, this is super early on. This is before he, you know, was really doing much of anything. He actually was trying stuff and he was writing about it. And he was saying, Hey guys, we should, we should use what they call a multi-modality approach. So it's, uh, you know, using various different medications to try to figure out, you know, which medicine's going to work best. And he had his own little protocol at the time. And so I was actively looking for protocols. I also was completely baffled because usually when you come into the hospital and your pulse oxygen is, you know, your pulse ox is 58, 65%. I mean, you are dead. I mean, you are near death or you're not breathing. It's these people would be talking and they would be, yeah, sure. Wow. They'd be breath, but they weren't, you know, they weren't dead. Like what is going on? How can they tolerate such a low pox, uh, pulse ox? And so did, were they having micro blood clots? You know, what was happening? Cause they, they were acting like they had pulmonary embolus going on. And so it was, it was baffling and uh, fun from the standpoint of, Hey, you know, let's really dig into this and let's really try some things and let's really come together as a team and really sort of figure out what is the best way forward. Mm -hmm. And um, that became increasingly difficult because of massive censorship of, of different ideas. So in other words, if I raised my hand, I said, Hey, I've had a thousand people, you know, that I put on ivermectin, you know, they've had really good outcomes, you know, then all of a sudden, uh, that would disappear from social media or whatever. Or if you, you know, had steroids as an option for people that would sort of disappear. So it took time before steroids kind of bro broke through. And I think steroids ended up saving a, lo a lot of people's lives. You don't want to use the steroids too early. Uh, you don't want to use them too late. So there was a sweet spot position where you really needed to try to use the steroids. And so I think steroids made a huge, huge difference. There were other doctors. There was a doctor in Houston who, who, uh, who had a very high success rate. His name was Dr. Barone and he was an ICU doctor and he was writing about all the treatment modalities that he was doing, ivermectin, vitamin C and so on and, uh, and steroids in the right doses. So for me, it was extremely interesting to try to find what is the best combination of things that we can use. And I tried to share it with my colleagues and, uh, you know, honestly, uh, 
many of them were disinterested. They only would want to do what, what, you know, what the, you know, the protocol was for the hospital. Yeah, it was really definitely, you know, coming from the top. And if you deviated, you know, you were likely to be in trouble. And I did see that. I, 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 I I didn't see it so much in Texas, but eventually it, it came to Texas. Saw it a lot with doctors losing their jobs when they spoke out about it, you know, saying, hey, we should do this or do that. And pretty soon would go against the hospital protocol and they would no longer be there. Um, with Peter McCullough, you know, obviously it looks like he's had some major, major issues, mm-hmm. uh, lawfare and losing his yeah. board certification. And I'll never forget the day I was sitting at home and I received some from, from the American Board of Emergency Medicine. And so this board certifies us as emergency medicine doctors, and many of the hospitals require you to have this to work. And I got a letter from him that said, hey, you know, due to misinformation, you know, you know, people, if, if, if you post anything on social media, if you, if you speak out and say anything, you know, there's a, there's a potential, you know, for you to lose your license uh, because of misinformation. And I just thought to myself, misinformation, isn't entire medicine misinformation? I mean, weren't we just doing lobotomies on people, you know, 50 years ago for depression? I mean, like, you know, yeah. we, like, like in medicine, like you're, you're either a doctor or you're not. And if you are a doctor, let's debate. And I want to have active debate. And I want to debate it openly. And I want people to go with who they actually believe and trust based upon the debate. Um, and so, in other words, it's sort of a second opinion. Um, so if I went out and I were to, and I'm not a big social media guy at all, but if I were to go out and speak about this, you know, politically, I saw that there was this just stark difference in how you would be labeled and there would be a certain narrative. And I was like, what in the world are we doing with politics and medicine? It's the absolute worst place for politics yeah. to be. You want to die? Be political in medicine because that's a good setup for dying, yeah. uh, not getting a good outcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth is the government, does the government really do a good job with our health. You know, I would argue being an anti-aging doctor that they have completely failed us. Uh, you know, I mean, there are more obese people and, and overweight people than we've ever had before. Over 70% of people in our country are overweight or obese, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is fresh uh, food, whole foods. Is it, is it, is it cheap? Is it easy to get? No, super expensive. You've been to whole foods and try to eat, you know, whole, whole fresh food, you know, expose, in a few days and it's very expensive, you know, but you can go buy a, you know, Pringles or back potato chips or go through McDonald's for so much cheaper. You know, if the government really cared, they subsidize good eating and mm-hmm. make it easy for people to eat healthy. But yeah. you know, yeah. you know, we don't it, do that. It's uh we, as we were, you know, even just challenging what was going on. And, and for a while, like I said, we were bought in and supportive and let's social distance, let's mask, let's play by the rules, let's keep our heads down. Let's get through these two weeks. Yeah. Um, but to your point, if it was about health, we just kept saying though, we just kept saying, yeah. if it was about health though, yeah. w- so many things would be different. And, That's and what we kept coming back to. And I'm curious from you, you know, pre-vaccine, we've got, uh, mainstream modalities for treating COVID and maybe you can enlighten us on what some of those were from the hospital standpoint, but then there was these mainstream ideas around prevention, which were social distance mask and, you know, stay out of pretty much anywhere and stay everywhere. indoors. Yeah. Stay indoors. What did you see as the mainstream, you know, treatment options in the hospital and what were your, your issues were that, or were they effective? Yeah. So, uh, the mainstream treatments at that point were oxygen for people whose oxygen levels were low. So that, that was the criteria for getting into the hospital. You could have horrible looking pneumonia, horrible looking x-ray, but they don't, they'd want to take you in the hospital as long as you, you had a good oxygen saturation. 
And so people and good, meaning it's not really that good. It's just not you're dying quickly. Good. And so some people were sent home that had very borderline saturation numbers only to die in their sleep. You know? yeah. And so it was one of those things where I saw it, not, this is not per, a personal experience, but I saw other stories of this. And I, and, and I knew from my own personal experience that it, it probably was true that people were being sent home and, and they weren't given anything, no follow-up, no, no formal plan, no, you know, even a pulse ox to go home with saying, hey, if it goes below 90%, you know, come back in, let us recheck you, stuff like that. And so I felt like a lot of people were filtering through the cracks. And so we would put people in, they would give them rendisivir if they were, you know, sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. They would start treating them with antibiotics if they felt there was a secondary bacterial pneumonia. Um, but in general, once you reach that second week, um, that's when you started getting really sick and you would get blood clotting and you would get, you know, the, the horrible looking lungs and, and so on. Um, and so it, it, it was a real issue, especially people that had high exposure. So, you know, I can think of a paramedic, um, that, that I, that I knew he, uh, he was young, he was 27 and he was treating, you know, someone in the ambulance that had COVID and he had to put, he put down a tube to breathe for him. Um, and, uh, and he had a huge exposure to COVID and then he ended up getting put in the hospital for months. He needed a lung transplant, but because he was still testing positive for COVID, they, they refused to do it and he ended up passing away. So it was a real issue. And so when people say it wasn't a real disease or wasn't anything, I was like, no, no, it was, it was real, but clearly it was a graduated risk. And so what we were doing initially was the, I think the minimal amount when we could have been trying a lot of different things that, that mm. were potentially safe. We certainly, no one was advocating for early treatment. And I think that's where everything kind of went, went awry. Yeah. Is that we, we weren't willing to try stuff for early treatment. And when doctors did say, hey, what about ivermectin? They were quickly smashed down and pretty soon the FDA, you know, ivermectin is for horses. I'm like, what right. are they talking? Four yeah. billion have been given to humans. And they would say, it's unsafe, it's unsafe, it's unsafe. And you're just like, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, something else is going on. Because yeah. they're, they're not telling the truth. Listen, COVID was crazy for all of us, but one of the silver linings of it all that no one can dispute is that more people all over the world are now taking ownership of their health and realizing that the effectiveness of the immune system is actually a year-round daily job. We can't rely on the government to keep us healthy. It is up to us. And there is so much that we can do to bolster immune health naturally. One of those things is Immune Intel AHCC. This is a patented cultured mushroom product that goes through a very unique and rigorous fermentation process, which makes it more bioavailable and efficacious in the body. It's truly one of a kind amongst every other mushroom product out there. Immune Intel is an immune modulator with a normalizing effect for the immune system. So it's also supportive for those with autoimmune issues. It amplifies the innate intelligence of the immune system. It's a powerful antioxidant and has even been shown in clinical research to lower inflammation and stress hormones like cortisol. Chase and I both take two to four capsules a day without fail because we want that immune intelligence year round, baby. Not only are our bodies better equipped to handle things like viruses and bacteria going around, but also things like cancer cell proliferation. Yes, I said it. I don't make claims, but there are literally hundreds of clinical studies to back me up on that. 
To grab some for yourself or learn more about the pile of clinical research on AHCC for cancer, Lyme, HPV, liver disease, and more, go to themedicine.com forward slash products. That's themedicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N dot com forward slash products. And feel free to use our podcast listener discount code medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N. Cheers. So, uh, and then masking. I just have to talk a little bit about masking. Yeah. So, so here's, I mean, with masking, honestly. Um, so as an ER doctor, I rarely wear a mask. You know, if I'm going to go in and I'm going to have to get close to somebody's airway, you know, if I'm going to put them life support, that kind of stuff, sure, I'll put on a mask. If I'm worried somebody's going to spit on me or for one of those spit talker type people that has a lot of, you know, water droplets coming out, then it might, you know, stop a little water droplet, but that virus goes in and out of the mask. We've always known this. Yeah. The pores in the mask are, they're not protective for just viruses floating in the air. So when a Fauci came out and said, masks don't work, masks don't work, you know, for this kind of thing, you know, that was actually the truth. And then, you know, a couple months later, he's like, everybody's got a mask. Everybody's going to do this. And you know, it's fine. I was like, okay, if, if this is what will keep businesses open, you know, right. I'll wear a mask. This little kids. I mean, the main thing is like we're literally destroying our country over this over this thing. I mean, we're like all small businesses. We're just getting absolutely wiped out. Yep. Families yeah. that have worked forever, you know, trying to keep. It. And I'm a small business owner too. I know how difficult it is. Is some you got some good months and some bad months and everywhere in between, and then something like this comes down where you got to shut down mandatory for two weeks, and you got fear on a, an apocalyptic scale. Right. I mean, he's coming in, and so I had empathy and uh, and sympathy for people who had small businesses and so i was like oh, i'll wear a mask you know if that'll help them open up but think about it again critical thinking you walk into a restaurant you get a mask on. as soon as you sit down you take it off yeah yeah it's yeah. theater is what it is and it would have been nice if somebody said you know it's if politicians said you know it's theater but you know it's it eases people's fear right well you right. Know, it would have been a little bit better to to be more transparent and to say look if you're young and healthy, you know, yeah, sure, you may get this, but you're unlikely to get as sick as if you were older, particularly much older and had a lot of medical problems. So we need to sort of protect the people that were high risk. And instead of being very transparent with that, we would treat a six-month-old baby the same way we would treat an 86-year-old man, you know, with the fear index. And, uh, and so it became... I became irate when I saw my kids uh, on social media. They, they, they play football and they're out of football practice outside running drills with masks on. Wet, soppy masks that they could hardly breathe through. Just They'd come home, Dad, we can hardly breathe. Like, like they were running sprints and we have these, my mask is so, yeah, it's Texas. It's, it's like not 100, smart. It's, it's just like 100 nuts. degrees outside in the summer and they're yeah. running. Yeah. Like, what is going on? It's like there is no, and so I actually, actually wrote back to the school. I was like, what are you guys doing? I mean, yeah. this is foolish. And in California, there'd be people on beaches that I would see walking totally by themselves yeah. on right. a beach. Yeah. The dog, it, walk, walk on the, the dog and the, the police come in and tackle them and arrest them. I'm just like, yeah, guys, like, and, and this is really where I saw in my mind, fear was so powerful that it allowed a few people to take control of all of us. Yeah. And I think this is sort of the lesson is like in the future when something like this tends to crop its head up again, I think enough of us have to stand up and say, no, mm -hmm. this, is, this is not going to happen again. We are not going to let you do this to us. Yeah. And it does work. That's the thing is that 
people and, and I've been here too. I'm not immune to this to, to, you know, be like, Oh, I don't want to get kicked out or I don't want to get thrown off or I don't want to, you know, be punished in some way for speaking out, but there is a way to do it civilly. Um, and if enough people do that systems and organizations do respond, for example, I know of a couple schools, um, public schools, even, and certainly private where the parents got together and said, Hey, our kids are not wearing, they're not going to wear masks in school. You know, these are like four and five-year-olds where they're not even able to wear a mask properly, which is a whole nother thing. Most adults aren't able to wear a mask properly. As a dental hygienist, it's like 101, you get trained every time. As soon as you touch the mask once, it is now done. It's now not sterile and you have to change it out. I was seeing people, you know, throw masks in the bottom of their purse or on their car seat or on their car floor and then pick it up or around their little, you know, rear view mirror. I mean, I kept it in my, because I was just playing ball, but I just kept it in my pocket. So like it's for, for someone who's like been trained in like what's sterile and what's not, it's like, I wanted to just laugh out loud when I saw how people were using them. And anyways, that's that's a whole nother thing. But, it, you know, these parents come together and they say, no, our four-year-olds are not going to be wearing masks. And there's enough of them, the majority of them. And the school responds by saying, okay, 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 you know, don't pull your kids out. We can, you know, we can figure this out. And that's just one example. But that was that is and was happening in certain areas of the country. And I think that people just don't realize how much power you do have. And when we exercise that power and our voice in a civil, respectful way, like, thank you for your input on my health, respectfully, no. Or thank you for your input on what's best for my child, respectfully, no, we're not going to do this. Um I think that is the key. It doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be disrespectful. It can actually be very effective um, being, you know, calm, but actually using your voice. And I'm so glad you brought up, you know, if this ever happens again or the next time, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, we need to remember these these feelings and what we were told and how we were pushed in ways that like did not line up with reality or logic at all. Um, you know, we need to remember what that felt like and be able to exercise our voice and say, you know what, respectfully, no. Absolutely. It starts at the local level, you know, like you said. And in fact, my wife and I got involved and we got a group of parents together and it became larger and larger group and so on. And our big push was, you know, we don't, we want it to be mask optional. We were very fortunate in, in the fall of 2020 to have an option at our school to have remote school. In other words, uh, kids can do it by Zoom or they could go in person, but they'd have to wear a mask the whole day. I just told my wife, I was like, our kids aren't wearing a mask. Like, it's, it's, I'm just not going to put them through that fear. I'm not going to through that discomfort. I'm through the breathing issue. I'm not going to have them breathe these fibers all day long for the entire day. So I'd rather have them be at home and they can just do whatever they want here and then go in for, for the sports. So go in for the sports and do that every, every day. And so that worked out well, and then it became mask optional for us ultimately in that second, you know, semester. But I know that in other places in California, I mean, the mask went on for years. Remote learning probably went on for years, and remote learning was not ideal. No, that's for sure. But we got to, you know, hear a lot of stuff that was going on and see how they were teaching. And so I think a lot of parents kind of woke up too to going, "Well, what's going on in our school system now?" And so, um, so I think that there were definitely um, some things that went on with the mask that were 
extremely painful to have to witness as a doctor and extremely painful to have to witness the fear um, index because it really helped control people when they became more and more afraid. And uh, so I told you I had this friend, right? I got to tell the story. It's pretty yeah. funny. So this guy is, uh, he's a six foot three, you know, 240 pound of former Navy SEAL. Uh, he, in fact, is a physician. Um, he, uh, and he's just a very, very, very smart guy. Um, very early on, he, he and I talked and he's like, Alan, he goes, you know, there's way more to this. Like there's, there's something beyond like what they're telling us is it's, it's not, not true. And he was like, and by the way, I just was sharing some studies and my Twitter account got taken, taken down. I have no, no idea why. Um, and so the, the idea was that, you know, for him, he was like, I'm not buying into this thing. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not wear a mask. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm not going to fly in a plane. He didn't fly in a plane for, for two years. But he got confronted in a store by a lady who just comes up and starts yelling in his face about, you know, he's wearing a mask and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, you know, again, if I was a person who was, you know, afraid of getting COVID, I don't know that I'd be running up to the nearest person, get in their face and trying to yell at them if I'm right. afraid right. they're going to get something. It just kind of goes against common sense. But whatever, she did it. And he goes, do you know what I do for a living? And she was like, oh, does that matter? How does it matter? She was like, well, what do you do for a living? And, you know, she said, whatever. And he goes, well, I happen to be a doctor and I'm just here to tell you, I'm not worried about this. And uh, if you were truly worried about this and actually smart, you can get away from me if you're worried about it, you know, right. so back off. I'm being nice. He was a little more forceful. He's Navy SEAL and he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't put up with much. But the idea was there were doctors out there that knew that a lot of this was fear, uh, a fear gauge thing. A lot of it politically tied fear and it just was outrageous. And then you, you look at the different states, the states that were more blue were all in on the fear index and doing maximum thing, maximum government control. The states that were more red were like, the people were like, no, we want to fight this and so on. And so then you saw the great migration of people were like people in California that had yeah. kids were like, we're not going to have all this, like get it, we're, get, we're leaving, you know, so on. And so I think that kind of opened my eyes. I'm not an overly political person, but it opened my eyes to uh, politics is to me is not about left or right. It's actually about actually, if you're a political person, you should be taking care of the people. And I think we've gotten to the point now where we're taking care of these mega corporations and they're buying off our politicians and we're just getting these narratives, whether it's from big pharma or big tech or whatever. And so I would encourage people to do their own critical thinking. You know, we have to think about, wait a second, if someone's being censored, <laughs> why are they being censored? Mm -hmm. Right. My buddy, who's a Navy SEAL doctor, who's like extremely accomplished and they're knocking him off, you know, Twitter for sharing stuff like people should. But unfortunately, people really didn't know initially. Right. When just thousands of accounts got purged and people lose their YouTube and this or that. And you try to talk about this or that you were. And uh, and for us, it kind of accelerated when the vaccine, you know, came out uh, when the vaccine came out. Uh, a lot, there was a, a ton of excitement, right? I mean, I had every 20 year old kid jump on the line to get a hold of every 80 ahead of every 80 year old. Right. I would be like, How did you get me like, back to my life? Get me back to my, yeah. Sir, I'm like, How I, did you, how did you jump ahead? You're not even supposed to be on. Well, I just told him I had diabetes and I take insulin. I was like, Do you? I'm like, no. <laughs> so I'm like, So, I mean, I saw a lot of that, which made me, you know, a little bit uh, ashamed of them. <laughs> you know, for doing that kind of thing, uh, because there were truly people out there at risk. And I wanted, if there were any therapeutic or potential vaccine that would work, I would love for that person who's at high risk to be given it first. Um, so the whole vaccine's a, a completely different topic and I'm happy to, happy to get into that too. Um, but I think again, 
it, it, it sort of led me down this road to doing more critical thinking. And, and really, if they're telling us something, let's step back and say, okay, what if they're not telling us the truth? Why would they be doing this? Mm-hmm. And I think if more people did that, um, I think more people would rise up a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say this isn't good. And it really helps to have kids. I know you guys don't have kids yet, maybe someday, but like when you have your kids, it's like you are fighting for them all the time. And I just did not want, I did not want them to have fear. I didn't want to be afraid of this. I didn't want to be afraid that mom and dad are going to get sick. None of that. So I was just like a stand for them saying, look, you're going to have as the normal life as possible. And, uh, and we're going to try to keep you because it has real, and I think we're going to see it, the implications of all this stuff that's happened, you know, with the test scores and the anxiety and the depression and the suicides. And I mean, I, I think I just read that the suicide rate was the highest this past year than it's ever been yeah. in, in our history. Right. Yeah. I think it's just began to trickle into every lane. And, and um, I think most of us, even leading up to this, uh, when, when this vaccine was rolling out, you know, if you would have asked us when the, when the pandemic hit, we would have been like, yeah, okay, vaccine, we're really open to solutions and let's hope that the, you know, modern technology develops something that can be really effective. But as we slowly saw some of these just, just didn't even seem right narratives around masking and social distancing and, and uh, the punishments that were, were taking place for, you know, disobeying going onto the beach or something as, as ludicrous as that, we started to get super hesitant around the relatively quick rollout of this uh, yeah. medical intervention. And, and initially, even, even before we started looking into it and talking to people that we trust who are in the medical community, we were like, we're definitely not going to be first in line on this thing. You know, uh, we're, yeah. we're, we're healthy. I don't see any reason why we would need this vaccine. Um, I've never felt good when I had vaccines as a child. I don't necessarily think this is going to be something that we partake in. Um, and then it, this was, you know, maybe months and months prior to its rolling out. And I think a lot of people were in that camp and then it just began to get more and more forced. And, uh, the conversations of mandatory, Mm -hmm. uh, started hitting the zeitgeist. And then it was, uh, anybody who held some level of, you know, federally associated job, it was going to be mandatory or you'd lose your, your livelihood and, and then more and more severe. Right. And so I'm curious for you, which ultimately was like, all right, that's, that's, that's it. Something is up at least from, from our seat. What were you experiencing? And maybe what was the moment where you were like, I am going to have to zig as the world zags here. Yeah. So for me, it was, um, it, again, most of this actually was very interesting from a medical standpoint, like the, what was happening with the disease, why it was doing certain things in certain people, um, how it was working, what were the potential treatments, um, all of it was interesting. But then when they rolled out the vaccine, it seemed pretty quick to me, you know? And, uh, and again, I was just like, man, I, I had that MRNA technology, uh, I'm going to look into it. And I, and I had already known that they had been, you know, they've been working on MRNA technology for a while. Um, and they just hadn't gotten it right. And the last time they had used it, it was for children and, uh, it ended up harming more children than it, that it helped. And so they ended up withdrawing it from the market. And I was just thinking in my mind, you know, this is, this is definitely something that I don't know that three months worth of data is going to be good enough. And certainly I was thinking about for my children. In fact, I text, I testified before the Texas Senate and I said, Hey, you know, I am, um, 
I'm concerned about the potential for mandates, particularly when it comes to children for the COVID vaccine. We just, we don't have the long-term data on it. And I hope that you guys will take a stand and not let it be mandatory. This is very early on. After that testimony, which I testified for three minutes and for the Texas Senate subcommittee, three minutes, that's it. But it was online or whatever. Anyway, I got a call from the hospital and my medical director saying, hey, you can't do that again. You can't be on there talking about that. And I'm just like, wow, like this is really happening out there. And, uh, and so from my personal standpoint, I was already, uh, everything I'd already seen lying about the mask, doing the ridiculous, going out eating, taking off the mask, this and that. I'm just like, you know, everybody is just sort of doing this CYA sort of, sort of deal where, you know, these politicians, they don't know, they just, whatever, they're just doing whatever. And for some reason, the medicine people aren't standing up or they're not able to, or maybe tons of people are getting calls like I am, you know, maybe they're being threatened with this or that. And so I became very concerned about that. And, uh, as far as the vaccine goes, I didn't consider it for myself. I didn't consider it for my family. In fact, I told my wife, I was like, there ain't no way our kids are getting this. There's no way we, I mean, I want long-term safety. This yeah. mRNA technology has never been successful. Why should we think after three months, it's going to be? And in a very just common sense way, you know, you're going to have to convince me with, with more than three months worth of data. Hadn't seen any of the Pfizer data, none of the documents, you know, and there was some court deal about them trying to keep it blocked for 70 years. And I'm just like, this is sanity. Like there is no way. And then of course, um, I told you about what was happening in real time with the, you know, the young people were jumping in front of the older people. Um, as far as my own personal opinion on it, I viewed it as it was all risk-based. If you were very high risk, I thought maybe the vaccine might be worth, you know, taking a chance on. And so my in-laws, I told them they were in their mid seventies. I said, you know, you probably should get it. You know, it seems like from what I've seen, this is like six months in, uh, I said, at least it seems to be, you know, safe in this period of time. And I was like, and you guys are higher risk. You know, if you guys get it, there's a 5% chance that you can die from it. Not, not, not 99.5% chance you live. This is a 95% chance you live. So if you get it, you probably will live, but your risk is significantly more than me at 50. At 50, my risk was, you know, 0.5%. I don't know how many 50, 50 year old people you've seen. I'm now 53, but at 50, there's a lot of really unhealthy people out there. If, if we just go across the board, I mean, even if you look at 30 year olds, I mean, you know, how many 30 year olds are 300 pounds plus to diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, all this stuff. So like it was a number thing, but also it was also just the comorbid conditions that people had. So, um, so from their standpoint, and they're really the only ones that I ever said, Hey, you know, you ought to consider doing it. Everybody else I'm like, yeah, you might want to wait a little bit. Let's just more time. Let's buy ourselves some more time. Like, and what was happening is we went through the, the Delta variant and then, then, then the Omicron variant was, was coming next. But for me, I just, uh, I got a lot of pressure to, to do the vaccine from the people I work with, you know, they said it was a mandatory thing and I held them off for about a year and a half. And by then it was clear that, you know, the vaccines don't even work. So um, and by then, uh, but they still demanded that I do it. And I just told them, guys, go find somebody else. Been there 23 years. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing it to check off a box. That's not how I do my health. Like I stay healthy for a reason. It's not because I check off your boxes. If I checked off all your boxes, you know, chance I'd be overweight with high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, and deadly metabolic syndrome X, right? I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. Are you hearing in your community of medical professionals that this would stop transmission? 
Or was that just something that they were saying on the news to keep us all comfortable? Yeah. Well, they lied about that. Yeah. So, you know, they lied about that. And it wasn't until the Omicron variant came through and everybody got it. You know, even people had been vaccinated two or three times and people came in to me and like, Doc, I thought, I thought this was going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ever get this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're all vaccinated. I don't know how I could have got it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I guess the vaccine didn't work, yeah. you know, stop transmission. Huh. Um, the study was never done to stop transmission, but they said it stops transmission. So they said the unvaccinated were going to die. I haven't died. So it's one of those things where there were a lot of things that were being said to, in my mind, to ramp up the fear index. Whether the vaccine ends up being a biological weapon that's been launched against us, I have no idea. I mean, maybe, I don't know, but you know, I don't think it was done in a nefarious way. I think they were really trying to come out with something to help people. And it just like, like it, like I kind of expected it, the technology wasn't quite there yet. So I think that's kind of where, where the vaccine issue is. I mean, it's a, it's one that I think people woke up and they got tired of being lied to. And once, once they had multiple vaccines, I had people with five, six vaccines and they get COVID over and over and over again. And the studies right now that I'm seeing are the more times you get a vaccine, the more likely you are to get a COVID. So my common sense question is, I wonder if the vaccine's screwing up your immune system. You know, is it? Early on, we saw the myocarditis and I was like, hey, I was telling my colleagues, hey man, this myocarditis, like we're seeing myocarditis, like what the heck? I haven't seen myocarditis in 20 years and now we're seeing all this myocarditis in people. Like what's going on? Oh, well, no, it's, it, it can't cause it. And you heard them over, they even denied it once these reports were coming out. They denied it. They, meaning whoever the powers of be, were denying it. Saying, mm-hmm. oh, no, no, it doesn't cause it. Well, now it became, it's quite clear now. Most people understand that teenage boys in particular are the highest risk for developing myocarditis. And in many countries around the world, they've already outlawed the mRNA vaccine for that age group. Under 30, I think Sweden and a few others, the Netherlands, they won't allow the, the mRNA vaccine. So I think that there is, with the vaccine, it was, um, again, it's just something that made me quite angry when they mandated it. Um, I, I, in fact, I got very angry about that, not because of my own personal situation. I got very angry because I saw many people who did not want to do it and had real concerns around it be forced to doing it. And one of them was, was a friend of mine. And he told me, he was like, Alan, he's like, I'm really concerned about doing my job. I can't lose my job. I can't afford to, I have to, I have to do it. And I said, well, you know, I said, I said, I understand what you're saying. You know, I, I can't tell you it's a good idea, but you know, and he, so he decided on his own, he was going to go see a cardiologist before he had the vaccine. Just wanted to make sure his heart was normal. Everything was clear. There was going to be any problems. And so he did, he was very, he was a very concerned fella, very proactive. He went and saw the cardiologist. Cardiologist said, yeah, everything looks great. All the tests fine, normal. He went and got the vaccine. And within a couple months, he had a, a heart attack and now has a couple stents in place. So, so there is something going on with the vaccine that's concerning. And I think instead of people saying to me, and, I, and this has been said many times, COVID causes myocarditis. And COVID causes it more, COVID's more likely to cause myocarditis than the vaccine is. Well, okay, so number one, I don't think that that is actually true when we look at the studies, but let's just assume that they are right. Why are they not asking this question? Why are we giving something to anyone that causes myocarditis at all? Why? Like, and if we are going to mandate it, 
it's insanity. Because to me, if you're going to mandate it, mandate it on the people that are likely to die from this. Okay. I mean, if, if you're really going to go to that length of mandating it for people, don't mandate it for the, you know, 18 year old kid who's going to college for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, who's a teenage boy who has the highest risk of getting myocarditis, which can be fatal, can be long lasting. Um, there's other things too, association with blood clots and miscarriages and weird stuff with the eyes. And I mean, case reports are coming out. We're starting to see more and more research around it. This is not, this is an imperfect vaccine. It's not really a vaccine. It's an imperfect therapeutic for a disease right now that causes minimal problems for young, healthy people. So for me, the, that, that was the, that, that was the end. When I saw that, that mandating, I, I was like, wow, this is how it's done. You get everyone so fearful and you control all the level, le- levers of communication so you don't let my voice get out and all the thousands of other people who may have an opinion like me. All of a sudden, you're forced into something you would have never done on your own had you had all the information. What are your thoughts about it being added to the childhood vaccine schedule officially just i think it was like six or eight months ago it was officially added to the the schedule uh when we know that there are a lot of reactions uh not every person of course but there have been a lot of really negative side effects of this how like how is that even possible that they can then say okay now every child is, you know, is recommended to get this. I, I I think it's like it's six months of age or up. Like, how is this even happening? They have a lot of power. And when I mean they, I mean the apparatus that controls this whole thing, that makes these decisions. They have enormous amounts of power. If you look at the things that have been done to us, um, if so if you're a woman and you're pregnant, you know, they came out immediately. Oh, this is safe during pregnancy. I'm just like, these people are nuts. There is no more. There, if you're a pregnant woman, in my experience, this is my experience taking care of people. If you're a pregnant woman, the the thing that's utmost on your mind is protecting your baby. That's why you stop drinking. Many women stop smoking. They take really good care of themselves during their pregnancy. They maybe take Tylenol if they have a headache, but they don't want to take anything else. They're very, very focused on taking care of their bodies. And now you're telling them, oh, this is safe in pregnancy, this is safe in pregnancy, this is safe in pregnancy. I mean, to me, when, when they started doing that, and and it wasn't just, when I say they, I mean, this is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and all this stuff. So I'm just like, these people who are supposed to be the gatekeepers of, of good sense have no good sense. They're being told what to do by powers that be. Whether it's the People that fund them, you know, I don't know how much money they get from Pfizer and Moderna and all these other companies. I don't have any idea, but I suspect if I looked into it, there's a money trail there. I suspect that money is the reason why, to, to tell you. 72 vaccines on the childhood schedule, insanity. That's absolute insanity. We wonder why there's so much autism. Like if, if I were asking quite, I mean, I would just ask more questions of these people to try to find out why are they doing this to us? And I suspect, though, it's, it's, I don't know if it's so much nefarious as it is about, you know, money. You know, there's, there's probably being funded. They're probably being, you know, there's probably this kind of big push and so on. Do you want whiter teeth? 
Well, who doesn't? As a registered dental hygienist, I'm here to share a little secret with you. If you want whiter teeth, you need to keep them very clean and optimally mineralized. When teeth are mineralized properly, they can better resist stain and decay that causes your smile to yellow over time. This is why we use Living Libations toothpaste exclusively. For example, their triple mint enamelizer toothpaste includes an ingredient called nanohydroxyapatite, which is bioidentical to the primary mineral that makes up your own teeth. So every time you brush, you are bathing your teeth in a mineral they already recognize. And your teeth are harder, stronger, and more resistant to decay and staining. Living Libations uses no harmful dyes, sweeteners, irritants, or other garbage that most toothpastes have. Honestly, most is garbage. Only the highest quality herbs, minerals, and other naturally occurring ingredients. If you go to themedicine.com and navigate to our medicine cabinet, it's there that I break down every Living Libations product that I use and provide a hefty discount for you. Or you can just check the show notes below for the direct link. Living Libations doesn't use discount codes anymore, so you got to use this link if you want the discount. Enjoy stronger, healthier, whiter teeth. I was listening to just on that point of women and obstetrics and, you know, um, pregnancy. First of all, like there's never there wasn't any, you know, big studies done on pregnant women. So where are they getting the data that, you know, would support them saying, yes, this is is safe for pregnant women when things like sushi and lunch meat and, you know, Advil and coffee are are technically not safe in pregnancy. How can you say that this is? Um, And then, you know, I was uh, listening to a podcast probably in 2022 um, after the vaccine had been out for about a year. And this was uh, an OB nurse and she was basically coming out as a whistleblower on this show and saying, I cannot stay quiet anymore. I am seeing, you know, previously in one month, we would have one to two miscarriages or stillbirths, like late, late stage births where the the child doesn't survive um one to two a month she said in the last month with this vaccine rolling out and women taking this vaccine she said we've had over 30 in one month where previously over the course of the years one to two has been the norm and now it's up to 30 a month And, and this is just one woman's experience of course but she was coming out as a whistleblower saying like i i can't do this anymore i'm leaving because they are not taking enough action in my opinion and they're continuing to perpetuate this if anything this misinformation that this is safe right um which is just like absolutely mind-blowing have you heard anything like that yeah for sure yeah i've heard a lot about the uh, miscarriages both late stage and early you know increase in miscarriages I think to the point of misinformation, you know, misinformation has been the the crutch that they uh, attach themselves to, right? So in medicine, it is super important that I be able to speak freely, okay, to other doctors and to people and for them to ask questions and for me to reconsider it. And it's my job. My job is to learn from my patients, 
based upon what they they're they're asking me. If I don't know the answer, I need to go do research and all these kind of things. And I think the suppression of our ability to share information, our ability to ask legitimate questions, it's totally okay for you as a patient to ask a question, to have a concern. And, and I think that what ended up happening was we got totally suppressed in our ability to share information or share an alternative viewpoint. You don't need to look any further than that uh, Peter Hotez, you know, this huge uh, advocate all over, you know, the news about, you know, let's just, you know, these people are crazy if they don't do vaccines and all this kind of stuff. The fact that he doesn't want to, you know, debate anyone, you know, the fact that you could never get them on with somebody who, you know, smart as them or maybe even smarter. I don't, he doesn't strike me as a super smart guy, but I don't know. It, I think that if you had an ability to openly debate people like this, then we would probably get to some, you know, reasonable conclusions about how to move forward. But these people hide. Mm-hmm. They don't come out and they don't come out and play. So they hide behind their grants and about their big money and the, you know, the companies that protect them and the big institutions that protect them. They don't come out and just want to talk about the stuff. So from my standpoint, I would love to have an open, you know, more open transparency around these kind of things, particularly now that we have some information. We know myocarditis, we know miscarriages. There's a lot of case reports of lots of other things. It would be great if the government would cooperate with us and say, hey, look, you know, when you come into the hospital with a certain condition, you know, we want to see if it is related to your vaccine, back vaccination. And so looking at different condi- conditions, we could, I mean, there are studies that can be done where we could figure a ton of information out quickly. I suspect they have no interest in funding anything that's going to go against the mRNA being a good idea. In fact, if anything, they're going to try to push us to continue taking it by adding it to the vaccine schedule. My kids will never take the vaccine, even if I had the choice between them going to college or them not going to college. They would not go to college. Mm -hmm. You know what? They would be just fine. Uh, The vaccine is that important to me. Like, I do not want them to do it. I've seen too much already that concerns me, and I'm super concerned about the narrative, and I'm concerned about censorship. The censorship in medicine is what really scared me. When I saw that, I was like, this is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Super bad. We're, we're, uh, you know, we've waited to have this conversation for a long time. Obviously we're, we're, you know, a few years out from this thing and, and it's just so perfect that, that it's you who, who we're having this conversation with because you're just someone who's trying to do an authentic, honest job and be a stable force for your family. And you're not you're not trying to sell a documentary or you know a, a series of supplements or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with those approaches either. I totally understand them, and I love all the documentaries and I love supplements. But it, it's so perfect. And, and having gotten to know you now um, through the last few months of dialogue, it's like, what do you have to gain from literally going? the most uncomfortable route possible just to be honest and live in integrity, you know? And um, I'm curious from your perspective, what has this meant for for you as a professional and personally in your family to have had to really go against what the mainstream is suggesting should happen in these environments? So I think that the answer to that question is not so much a professional one as it is a personal one in terms of 
really trusting humanity again and really being, because my job is to love humanity. That's what I do, right? I mean, if I'm your doctor, you know, I, I want to love you. I, I want to truly care about you. And I want you to get the best possible experience possible, even though this might be the worst day for you. And I want to have that attitude with every single one of the people that I see. But what COVID did is it, it got me to where I really started resenting people. I started resenting those people that were forcing things on other people or were saying things. And, you know, being off social media, it was, would probably be a good thing, but you know, a lot of people were on social media and certainly I was too. And I'd never had a Twitter account until then. And I had, you know, right now like four followers. I'm not, I'm not big on social media at all. Okay. But I would make a comment on social media and I would just have all these people coming after me. Oh, who cares about you, Dr. 90210, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, I'm a doctor. Somebody should hear what I'm telling you about this. You know, this is like, I'm telling you information that I don't know, should be important. So the bottom line is I think that it has to do more personally where I want to truly love people again and to see the best in people. But I definitely see through this whole experience, how the Jews were exterminated. It, it was based on fear. It was based on suppression. It was based on controlling the narrative. It was based on people not speaking up. It was based on people trying to save their positions, whether it be in the government, their jobs. And I could never understood that growing up. I and mean, being 53 years old, I never understood how in the world could people just let people knowingly go off and, oh, these people are going to these camps and they're never showing up again. It's like, there's this total disconnect in my mind. I'm like, how could it happen? But when I saw what was happening with COVID, particularly in Australia, these people go to these internment camps, the police coming after them, shooting at them. And all this I'm just like, this is insanity that we have allowed this virus to completely give up our freedoms to the point where we're being forced to go to in, you know, camps and, you know, they're building all these camps and forcing people into camps. And so globally seeing this all happen to people just made me realize, okay, this is how it happened. It was all fear-based. They, they made them the other, you know, just like I was made to feel like I was the other. Mm -hmm. And it was in my mind is the exact opposite. I mean, I think that in general, I am the other. I'm like, I'm, I'm in shape. I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm healthy. I'm super, like I'm, I'm super fit. I take this as a, a huge priority in my life. I spent a lot of time doing it and I have a lot of success doing it. And now I've got all the unhealthy people now telling me how horrible I am, that I'm A, going to kill them, even though I have no symptoms. And that B, you know, I'm going to die, you know, from something that I know that, you know, the death rate in my particular situation is minute. I want to take the risk for myself. That should be okay. I shouldn't be forced to have a vaccine or forced to lose my job or forced to go to some internment camp. It, it was just, and I don't want to equate what happened to the Jews with what happened to us during that time. But I'm just telling you the mindset of how could it happen was opened up for me. Cause then I realized, okay, this, this is how it happened. People were afraid to speak up. People lost their jobs, you know, I'm sure a certain number of people that said anything or spoke up were killed or imprisoned, um, and so on. So a lot of the good doctors that spoke up have, have suffered greatly. If you look at Peter McCullough, I mean, there's just a guy that's trying to do a job. I felt like he was, you know, he was doing a very good job because he was actually putting out information out there and he was trying to open a debate and what'd he do? He got sued. Mm -hmm. he's, he's lost his board license, you know, from the American board of internal medicine. One of the up cardiologists in the world, I think at one point he was the most cited cardiologist on the planet. Yeah. So in other words, i.e., he's a smart guy and we should be actually listening to what he's saying and at least taking it into some sort of consideration, not making him some fringe dude who doesn't know what he's doing, 
like they could easily make me into a fringe dude. I don't have those credentials. Like, oh, I could be some fringe guy. But like a lot of really good people gave up everything they had to try to help us to at least open our minds saying, hey, you know, you might want to consider this. And they were, you know, censored, deplatformed and so on. I had a lot, a lot of friends who were censored and deplatformed and lost, you know, they lost their Stripe accounts and their businesses. They lost their banking accounts and banking. And it's like, what is happening? Like they can literally turn a key and shut off your ability for commerce. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's scary. You don't have to be overly intelligent to understand the human psychology of when you are defending a lie. We've all told that little lie and we're hypersensitive to finding out that we were like somebody finding out that we were lying. So we try to mute as much mm-hmm. as possible or patch. But the truth stands up yeah. when there's friction. The truth is able to withstand and, and arguably is significantly less. Uh, you're, you're less charged or triggered when somebody challenges you and you're in your in truth because you're like, great, let's yeah. continue to talk. This is going to stand up long term. So. I'm happy to dialogue with you. And then, and then, so there's like that piece of it, which is just, couldn't we have all had that gut instinct where it's like, boy, it really feels like someone's trying to defend a lie here. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other aspect, which is from my understanding, science has always been this realm of, of debate. And that's how we actually, uh, we, we massage through different perspectives and through different tests and through Mm -hmm. different hypotheses, theories, theories, what's going to stand up in the long term, And if we're not able to entertain that level of, of, uh, diversification in perspective or approach, we're really going to be subject to risk, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like I was so less concerned for a long time about who's right and who's wrong, and I'm still really less concerned. I don't get get off on being, you know, I told you so. It does not make me happy. Mm-mm. But what's more in, like disheartening to me is the fact that we aren't able collectively as a diverse set of human beings, and this goes outside of the science realm. This goes into politics. This goes into religion, perspectives on life, but the fact that we can't sit across from someone who is literally just another version of us, it's an extension of us. We have equality amongst human beings and say, hey, I have a different opinion. I have a different idea. I have a different perspective. And actually, guess what? This may be a little charged, but on the other side of this is a good thing because we will be able to sharpen the opinions mm-hmm. that we have and ultimately truth will will stand up. And that's what, what gets me the most bummed is that we're actually unable as human beings who so many of uh, of us deep down say that we're all equal and deserve some level of equality we're actually unable to come together and have constructive conversation without these triggers and without our tribalism uh yeah. manifesting to the surface yeah i mean i think that's one reason why we everyone here uh really admires rfk junior because he has spent his life, basically his professional career being on the outside, uh, being on the fringe and pushing against the mainstream, um, asking questions. um, But no one in 18 years has been willing to debate him. And that really speaks volumes. Um, And it's I think I'm personally so happy that he's running for president, because although I don't think that one person could ever just like magically transform our country to be, you know, perfect and beautiful and and lovely, like all around. Of course not. But in this situation, I don't see a world where it could be worse when your top down leader has the mind of 
RFK Jr. where he he's not interested in any more divisiveness. It's like so, so, so clear to anyone who has eyes to see it that divisiveness the divisiveness that was created and amplified during COVID amongst the right and the left and the maskers and unmaskers, vaccinated, unvaccinated, and, and beyond is tearing a gigantic hole in our country. And to get past that, to have any sort of progress on a fundamental level, like we need a, a leader who sees that divide and chooses to not partake in it. And um, I'm I'm just personally so glad that he is running because, you know, you hear, I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you have, you know, plenty of interviews with him where the journalist, whoever is interviewing him will try to ruffle his feathers and, oh, did you hear what Trump said? Did you hear what Biden said? What do you really think about Biden? Don't you think that he's this and that? And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to go there. I don't want to talk about what divides us anymore. I want to talk about what brings us together. I want to talk about what we have in common. I want to talk about our shared values, which if you really boil it down for most people in America and probably on the planet, we want to be happy and healthy and live long lives with people that we love. Like if you really boil it down. And so I, I just admire so much that he is running on that basis, on that platform. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on any of that. Yeah, I mean, he he definitely was uh, a perspective, particularly when it came to everything that was being mandated for us with with vaccines. And he's been a huge voice in the community of people that I deal with. He's a huge voice of being able to get out there and actually fight, you know. Um, in regards to his presidential aspirations, you know, the, the, the there is no way they're going to allow him to have enough of a voice to ever become president. Um, and when I say that, I mean, I think that whoever is in charge and I don't think it's I don't think it's the politicians that are in charge. They have already captured our country and I don't know what to do about that. And I would be open to hear about what to do about that. But they control the levers and. It has become increasingly clear that we've given up a lot of that control over the years, whether we we know it or not. And it doesn't take much to realize that you have a kid, you've raised him for 18 years, you sent him off to college, they come back a completely different person with 100% different ideas than what you raised him with. So something happened in that few peer, you know, few years when they were out there indoctrinated with whatever they were told to now they're they're completely different. So. While I have hopes that someday we will have a leader who can come in and, and help, I just, I just do not feel that whoever is in charge uh, is is going to give. I mean, the fact that they could do COVID to us and we gave up everything to to get a, a shot in our arm. I mean, you know, we we gave it up. But when you give up your body's freedom and you let people, you know, inject stuff into you that you don't want, you know, I don't know what, I mean, just think if it was a biological weapon and they wanted to kill off a bunch of people, well, you just let them do it. And what do we do for it? You know, we, we couldn't do anything because they control the levers. So I don't know. I want to be optimistic. And I told you, I wanted to be happy about this whole, whole interview. I, I had such a pessimistic experience with COVID that I personally am trying to give back my, my just my love for people and, and to what we're really about. And I think what you said is true. I think that most people are very, very similar. You know, they want a great life for themselves, their family. If they have children, their children. Um, and, you know, we want to live in peace. We don't want wars. We don't want these endless wars. We don't want to be killing people. We don't want to be killed. We just want to have, you know, our lives and to feel safe. Politics is a whole different, you know, thing. It's like, 
I have not been overly political, but what I've begun to realize is that it's not really about the left or right. It's really about who controls the money. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what makes it so hard. These, these Congress people should not go to Congress, make $140,000 a year. That's, that's not a, a tremendous amount of money that turns into 10 million you know, overnight. But for many of these people, it does. Right. They leave Congress with 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, 50 million, 100 million. Presidents come in with, you know, their net worth is maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks or a million bucks. And all of a sudden they're worth hundred million, two hundred million, three hundred million. It's, it's, it's a bought and paid for society. And, and I, I will tell you, I have friends that have a lot of money, a lot of money. And they know it's true. I mean, they say, hey, I want something done. I'm like, whoa, I thought you were a Democrat. Yeah, the Republicans guy's going to push it through for me. Don't worry. I'll donate his camp to campaign. I'll give him a couple hundred thousand bucks. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And, and it's, and, and I, I feel like we're already corrupted. Yeah. Top down. And uh, we, the people, have to take it back. And we have to take it back locally. So everything that you fight for has to be done at the local level. Kids, you fight for the school, school board, you know, other things for your community, your cities, you, you, you fight at that level. You do what you can to preserve what, you know, your values and what you think is important. But if you don't speak up, they're going to run right over you. Maybe RFK, I, I would love to hear, just would love to hear, because maybe, maybe it will help me. What would be his path to victory? Because, you know, what, I mean, I don't know if you listen to mainstream news. They never mention him. No. They no. never talk about him. They will talk about Biden's other uh, people that were Democrats that are running against him. I don't remember who they are now, but there's a couple. You know, um, they never talk about him. Mm-hmm. They don't mention him. They don't say a thing. Yeah. Or how, like, how does he, like, there's no debate format. There's no way. I mean, I, I get you, you you guys and, you know, me, I, you know, I know about him. I've, you know, I've been, you know, at events with him. I mean, like, He's like, I, but how does he get out to everyone? Yeah, I know. We, we don't watch mainstream news ever, you know, unless it's something pops up on social media. Uh, we just don't use our TV for that. Um, so I know we are in a bit of a bubble, you know, we're in a health and wellness podcasting niche type bubble where the majority of people that we converse with and talk with and love and friends and everything are, are right there and also love him. So it's like, I know that we are in this bubble. I don't know. I, I, his team, the way that I hear it, I've listened to probably a hundred interviews with him at this point, maybe more. The way that his team uh, basically lays it out, they've laid out this picture uh, of his path to the White House and it was compelling enough for him to even run. Uh, So they must have something. They must have a plan of sorts. I know a, a big piece of that was because he he knows that he's not going to be on mainstream media, CNN and, you know, MSNBC and things like that. They're never going to bring him on because he would completely demolish anyone in a sort of debate type setting. But what he has leaned into is podcasting. You know, for instance, Joe Rogan reaches millions, millions and millions more people than CNN does. And, uh, you know, other huge shows. I know that that's where he's sort of aligned himself and um, really trying to reach the masses. But again, you're still only speaking to people who listen to podcasts, not the 55-year-olds that don't even know where their podcast app is on their phone. No hate to 55-year-olds, but that's just kind of the demographic of like where it kind of drops off for using podcasting for learning. Yeah. Whether, you know, I'm no political expert um, and RFK has, has, you know, my vote, but I don't love politics. I don't love politicians. I don't put my eggs in any single one person's basket. And whether it's 
Jesus Christ in the flesh, I'm probably going to have some hesitation about whoever wants to run for office just to begin with, because I think the, if you are actually interested in change, it's about radical responsibility and autonomy around what you can control. And I think that starts with your health, right? It starts well, with your well-being. It starts with your family, your community. How do you make change on a hyper-local level? Because if we continue the pattern as a, as a culture and as a society of sitting comfortably in our living rooms and getting angry at the television or, or our news feed on our phones, there won't ever be change. I also know that change, the most radical transcendent change, when we look at history, comes from figures like Jesus Christ, like, like Gandhi, like Mother Teresa. And it's these people who use this radical approach called peace and love. And that's a lot easier said than done. But it's those moments when you are uh, choosing not to re respond with hostility that change actually happens. And how much of an asshole is the person who's attacking someone who refuses to attack back, right? And I can, of course, say this as I'm not triggered and not, you know, uh, amped up on on something sitting here comfortably in my, my seat. But um, I tend to be more interested in where I can actually make an impact. And it starts with with myself and being healthy and being rational of mind and, and having my, you know, a willingness to use my heart and empathy and compassion in the decisions that I make and the relationships that I have. And, and I think that's where I'd really love to take, you know, the, the conversation next is like, I know that you've, you've changed a little bit of what you do post pandemic. And um, I know a lot of that's been prioritizing people's wellness, you know, these things that they have control over. Uh, maybe let us know a little bit about what you're up to and how you are, you know, continuing, like you've said, to, to serve humanity. Yeah. So, um, so uh, prior to COVID in, in 2018, um, I had this epiphany that people, well, they had deductibles that were much higher. You know, it, that was just the truth. Uh, my patients' deductibles went from three to five hundred dollars per year up to five thousand, ten thousand dollars per year. Many people would not go and get preventative lab testing done because labs were expensive. And so I had this idea of starting an online lab company where they could go in and order their own blood work. And so it was really for people that were kind of like me, maybe kind of like you guys that were just very proactive with their health. And they kind of knew what they wanted to order. And, you know, for me, I was like, eh, I want to check my testosterone. But I know that checking testosterone properly is not just measuring total testosterone. It's actually looking at free and bioavailable testosterone. Um, and so at understanding that I could, you know, form a website where I would put down, you know, the tests that I felt were necessary. So I had this five pillars of aging approach. And then I started this, this website in 2018. Um, since 2018, we just have partnered with people who, you know, were out there in the industry that wanted to learn more about their health. We're super proactive with their health. Um, in terms of the emergency medicine, you know, what I did is um, when I left the hospital, I just went and worked in a, in a little private emergency, emergency room. So I was still able to take care of patients and, and take care of them. So that really hasn't changed too much. So um, I think, you know, my, my own personal thing to get back to, you know, what can you do? I love how you said that, you know, you're going to focus on yourself. And for me, it's focusing on my mental health and just thinking, you know, I got to love people. I can't, I can't have this in my mind where I feel like this angst to people, whether it be fear or anger or whatever it is, because it never was like that before. And I think with COVID, a lot of us had to reevaluate that. Are we really fearful of our fellow, fellow man? Are we, are we empathetic? You know, how do we feel, you know, how do we feel now to the people that maybe got in our face a little bit or, 
even our own family members that wouldn't speak to us at Thanksgiving, you know, certainly it happened in our family where we had different people who had different views, you know, and, you know, I thought people would be interested in my view, you know, that were never, never asked me one question at all, you know, and then there were other people that, you know, you don't really want to know I had to say. So I think every person had a, a family situation. And then of course we all had friend situations too, you know, and, um, in communities that we're involved with, health communities, you know, 50% of the community would go one direction, 50% would go the other. And you had this almost demonization of either side. Um, at least it, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel uniting. And so I think from my standpoint is getting that love back has been my focus. And it's been a very spiritual one and being able to, you know, forgive myself for having maybe feelings of to other people about whatever feeling they did something, you know, to me or said something about me that just wasn't true. And then being able to love, you know, you know, my family has been a huge focus, like, you know, Hey, being able to love those people in the family that maybe wouldn't talk to me or disagree with me or thought I was going to kill somebody or whatever, you know, whatever it was. Um, and, uh, and then from that, um, uh, I think it's just inspiring for me to talk to other people who have gone through, you know, situations that, that can give me a different perspective. And so like you two, give me a different perspective. I freaking love coffee, but five years ago, it did not love me. I noticed that after drinking it, my stomach would get acidic and upset. I'd feel on edge and I was still having regular acne breakouts. Even though it was organic, fair trade and quote high quality, it was still too acidic for my body and likely in the 92% of coffee that has microscopic mold on it. I thought I was gonna have to give up coffee for good. Then I discovered King Coffee and my life and health was changed forever. King is a combination of reishi spores and organic coffee. Not only is it roasty and delicious, but the reishi spores support just about every system in my body. Cardiovascular, immune, endocrine. It's also antifungal, antibacterial, and yes, even antiparasitic. Chase and I have cleansed legit parasites with King. That may be TMI for you, but y'all, this is truly the world's healthiest coffee. If you want to ditch the jitters and enjoy the other incredible health benefits, you can learn more or purchase at themedicine.com forward slash coffee. That's the M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com forward slash coffee, or just check the show notes below for the direct link. You can always reach out to me with any questions. Happy sipping. You know, I, I kind of go off on JFK. I would love to see JFK actually be able to, I think this year is just a bad year because I just don't think they're going to allow him an, a, a voice. But I think what would it look like if he were to run, you know, it, in next time around where he actually would go into whatever ticket, I don't care. Demo he needs to probably be in one of the major ones to win. But let's just say he went at the Democratic one since he's a Democrat. So if he went in there, like everybody else did. I mean, they would, they would be forced to give him a voice, correct? And I do think he would have a significant chance of winning if someone gave him a voice. I just think that what the Democratic Party did this time is they just yeah. said, sorry, Biden's it. Nobody else can even challenge. And the truth is, I don't think Biden is going to debate at all, honestly, because okay. I don't think he could win against anyone, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I, I probably could debate him and do fine. So... Okay. My, 
my point is, uh, you know, I just think he is an inspirational person. I love a lot of his views. And I've talked to a lot of people about him. And I would love to see him run in a, in a but in a way where he can actually be given a voice. Because right now, um, they're not going to do it. No. And it, I, maybe there'll be a big surprise, but, you know, we've never seen it before in the history. And no independent has ever, you know, come and, you know, won a race. It could happen, I suppose. But it would have to be a ton of people to just say, you know what? He has a chance. Because right now, what's going to happen is people are going to say, he doesn't have a chance. We're going to vote for one of the other two. Yeah, I, there's there's new polls coming out all the time that I that I see, and he is gaining traction. I think from all of these huge podcasts that he's doing, you know, again, it's millions and millions more people that are than are who are watching the news. But you know, just because he they hear them doesn't hear him doesn't necessarily mean that that's necessarily going to be a vote for him. So yeah, I mean, I would love, I would have loved to, to see him in the, as the democratic nominee or, you know, even just have a chance to, to get on the stage and, and actually let the American people hear what he has to say. Um, because it's, it's, I think important, but I do want to come back to your work that you're doing today. Um, do you do you have a, a primary demographic of people that you see and that you're helping with this lab work? And what does that look like if if you know if Chase and I were like, hey, Dr. Hopkins, you know, can we get our blood work done? We want to get our blood work done. Do you work directly with patients? Like, okay, what are you feeling? What are you you know? What do you are, do you have symptoms? Here's what I recommend for you. Like, can you lay out what that experience looks like for a client or patient? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the way it works now is right. You go to your doctor, you have a, just a regular appointment, your doctor orders, whatever tests they think are necessary for you. And they give you a lab slip and they tell you to go to the lab. And then you go to the lab and you get your blood work drawn. You make another appointment with your doctor later on and you review the labs, or perhaps they just look at them and tell, tell you everything is normal and you don't need to come in. Um, that's kind of how it works now, right? And it goes through medical insurance and you pay whatever deductible you have and so on. If your insurance company feels like the labs were appropriate for you, then they'll pay everything after you pay your deductible. The reason why I started this were for two primary reasons. Number one, uh, people that just either had no insurance or had really high deductibles. So it became a way for them to access labs directly. Um, a perfect example is is a thyroid person. So I have a thyroid problem, right? I'm not saying me, but let's just say I had a thyroid problem and I take thyroid medication and my doctor, you know, wants me to check my TSH and they, the thyroid stimulating hormone, and they want me to do it every six months. Well, my deductible is like $10,000. So every time I do it, I'm going to pay at least several hundred dollars to do what I need to do, go and see the doctor, get the lab requisition, pay for the lab, the follow -up. Um, is there a way to save that person money? Well, yeah, they could come to yourlabwork.com click on TSH, pay $30. That includes the, the lab draw fee. Uh, they take the requisition. We issue the requisition, take it to the lab. Lab gets drawn. Results go to their email. Optionally, if they want a follow-up visit with me, they can. They can schedule a follow-up visit with me, but it's not required because it's extra you know, for follow-up visits. So um, it's a way, to, that was the, the first person that I did that for. The second person has been for uh, health optimizers. People that are data-driven, they think data is going to help them improve their health. So in other words, I have a good regimen going on. I'm taking these supplements. Are these supplements really working? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And so that's really the second person who uses our site. And that's the, actually the majority of people. 
Yeah. They come through the site, they already know, hey, I'm taking omega-3s because they lower triglyceride, they lower my inflammation and an inflammatory marker called high sensitivity CRP. They change the way I make cholesterol so I don't make those small dangerous cholesterol particles. I make large buoyant ones. I want to see if my omega-3s are working. And so they'll get a baseline test. They'll take omega-3s for six months and then they'll do the follow-up test. And they'll see, oh, these omega-3s really are worth taking. And some of these people, this is how they uh, justify switching brands on, on nutraceuticals because if they're not working, they're not worth spending the money for. So that's the majority of people or people that are actually health optimizers. They can check hormone levels. I don't know if you know this, but you can even check your fat of hormones. Your fat produces hormones. They're either pro-inflammatory hormone uh, or an anti-inflammatory hormone that's protective for your heart. So my goal is teaching. And so when you get the lab result for me, you also get a video. Video is included, there's nothing extra for a video where I go through and I talk about each one of the lab tests. So say you had your thyroid panel done, I go through a little 10 minute video. I talk about each test, what the optimal values are, not the reference ranges, because you can clearly see those where we'd really like to see you as an anti-aging doctor. And then the different things you can do to improve each one of the labs. So it's really sort of an education platform that was built around data. Um, and those are the two people that we tend to, to get come through our site. So if there's people out there listening and you're like, oh, I have kind of a high deductible, I think I'd like to try it, you know, you're welcome to give us a try. Um, it's kind of funny, I used to have a couple people uh, working for me and then I found, I told my mom, I was, my mom needed some, my mom was retired and she was like, son, is there anything I can do? I'd love to help out. And I said, you know, yeah, you can help out. How many hours do you want a week? And she said, well, yeah, I'll take whatever you can give me. Well, she ended up <laughs> loving it. And, cool. and, and what I found out is she did more work than the two other people that I had. And so uh, I said, mom, I was like, you're doing more work. I'm going to have to, you know, let somebody go. Or you still, you want to do this? She goes, I want you to give me everything. Like, this is great. This is you, you, you're, you're like giving me a second life. I'm like, oh, okay. So my mom basically runs the back end. She's, you know, in her seventies, people love her. So I guarantee you, you will have a good experience. If you don't have a good experience and I'll get after my mom, but people <laughs> love my mom. They, they absolutely love her. That so is, it's kind of a little family business, which is basically me and my mom. This is so important, guys, and everybody listening. We, I mean, if you're listening to the medicine, you're familiar with the fact yeah. that we say get your blood work done annually, regardless of age. Yeah, we these meat suits, these are our vehicles. These are our astronaut uh, vehicles that we get to travel through space in. And if we're not getting the oil changed, if we're not getting services done, if we're not checking in, most of the time when you wait for a symptom it's might be, you know, too late. And it's something you probably could have picked up through labs sooner rather than later. I'm curious, what do you see Alan from, let's just take, you know, generally men, you know, 30 to 50, what do you mm. be seeing uh, in labs that maybe is uniquely relevant uh, to the current times? And then, and then same for women, 30 to 50, what are you typically seeing as deficiencies or areas of improvement that people can yeah. lean into? Like trends. Yeah, so for sure, women, you know, what comes up for women is is thyroid disease. Um, you know, there's over 20 million women who develop thyroid or have thyroid disease here in the United States. So that's a lot of people. Um, women are eight to 10 times more likely to develop thyroid disease than men. The most common cause is an autoimmune thyroid disease called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so for a woman, if she is going to get checked annually, I really recommend she get not only her thyroid stimulating hormone checked, the TSH, but also to check your actual hormones being secreted by the thyroid called free T and free T4. In addition, you can measure antibodies because we see the antibodies elevate when your thyroid gland is being attacked from the autoimmune condition. 
And so you can check antibodies as well. And if you're at all confused, you know, there's the thyroid package on our website that kind of lists out my, sort of why you would get them checked and so on. Um, and we have an a la carte menu too that explains the lab and then why you might want to get it checked. But for women, for sure, thyroid, and then everyone across the board, men and women, I always encourage you to check lipoprotein A. What is it? You probably never heard of it. Well, it's because your doctor never checks it. Uh, the reason why it's not covered by insurance, uh, many primary care doctors don't know about it. Cardiologists are becoming more aware of it. About 20% of people in the United States have it, and it increases your risk for early stroke and heart attack. It's a super small, dense cholesterol marker, and uh, um, it's, it's LDL cholesterol, but very small, and it also um, has a little particle on it that leads to increased clotting. And so one of my curious parts about COVID and the vaccine in particular would be, I wonder how many people that have had problems with the vaccine with uh, blood clots or had problems with COVID and blood clotting, how many people actually have lipoprotein A? Because if you have lipoprotein A, you have to really think carefully about birth control pills, you know, because birth control increases your risk for blood clotting. And if you smoke and you take birth control pills and you have lipoprotein A, you're crazy because, I mean, you're increasing your risk dramatically of having a blood clot, you know, where your leg swells up. Why do we care about that? Well, if the blood clot breaks loose from your leg, it goes to your lung and kill you. So I advocate for everyone to get lipoprotein A checked. It's part of an advanced cholesterol panel, or you can check it by itself. Um, just tell you, it's like $50 to get it checked. You only have to check it once in your life. You don't have to check it multiple times. And you either know that you have it or not, and it's genetic. So you have a 50% chance of passing it on. The people that really, really need to check are anyone that has a family history of blood clots uh, and or early strokes and heart attacks, um, because it tends to, these, these are the athletes, you know, this is like uh, Bob Harper, we used to do, we used to do NBC's Biggest Loser as part of one of the uh, lab companies I work for. And on the, Bob Harper was this trainer and he was in great shape, but he had a heart attack at age 51. Everybody was like, how can that guy have a heart attack? Well, it turns out he had lipoprotein A. Yeah. So why would you want to know? Well, you'd want to know because you can be proactive about your health even more so than you maybe are. And there's certain steps that you can do and, and, and things that you can, um, you know, work with in order to try to lower your risk overall. But lipoprotein A is important. Guys, uh, you know, everybody wants to know their testosterone levels. They do decline over time. Um, some guys are on testosterone replacement therapy and even in their 30s and 40s. Uh, certainly by the time we get to our 50s, you know, a fair amount of us, about 20% have, have low testosterone levels, suboptimal ones. And uh, this is a big problem for us. This is why we put on weight. We get a lot of belly fat. We lose that muscle mass. You know, we just don't feel good and so on. So those are the main things uh, we see. Um, there's many others, but if you're asking me sort of boil down the more common ones, the, the, those would be it. That's so cool that you mentioned the um, the lipoprotein A because we are currently yeah, listening. We're listening to Dr. Peter Atia's book Outlive yep. together, and it's like yeah. twenty hours. It's a you know it's a thick book, and he spends like an hour talking about uh, LP little A as he calls it, and uh, just he basically said everything that you said um, over the course of an hour and explaining how important it is to get this checked. He said it's the first thing that he checks with every single one of their, his patients, no matter what they come to him with. So, yeah. um, you know, that's, I think that that's great. And it's certainly reminding me and, you know, encouraging me and, and Chase to, there's no reason not to, you know, just to know, to have that information. Um, because I think if we want to continue to make you know, truly informed decisions and intelligent decisions with our health, 
we also need to seek out that information, seek out the genetic testing and things that you're talking about, like the LP little a, um, so that we have that information and we're not just like shooting in the dark at what we think that we should be doing or what influencer XYZ on, on Instagram says works for them. But like taking a closer look at your genes and your genetic code, um, I think is, is, well, it, I know it's something that Chase and I are really, um, you know, feeling encouraged to do. And I think everyone out there, if you're listening, like spend the 50 to hundred bucks to just go get it done and do it once and be done with it. And then you have that information moving forward. There's a good chance you're probably paying $50 a month on a supplement that you don't need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I always tell people, I was like, that is the value of labs. Is it, we can, we can kind of tail the supplementation to the actual lab results. And that way you don't waste a ton of money on things you actually don't need. And there are key supplements like omega threes come to mind that do so many really interesting things with the lab data. But the question is, do you actually truly need them? So by checking those things, you can sort of find out if they're normal or, you know, maybe you do need some help and you need to take them. Uh, due to, like, I'm just going to explain to you. So when you go to your doctor, you get a, a normal fasting lipid panel. That's what the insurance covers, right? And that just gives us a few markers. Um, if you are going to do one test once, I would do the advanced cholesterol panel. That tells us the type of cholesterol you have. So LDL is the bad cholesterol. But we need to know, do you have the worst type of bad cholesterol, small, dense cholesterol, or do you have the large, more buoyant, uh, not as dangerous type? And the same thing with HDL, the good cholesterol. It tells us, do you have the large HDL, which tends to be the best type of HDL to have, or do you not have that? And so an advanced cholesterol panel also includes lipoprotein A. So if you're going to do the test um, at least once, I would do advanced cholesterol panel. That gives you a very good snapshot. Well, it actually gives you a full evaluation of your cholesterol. And you only have to do it once. Obviously, if you, if you look terrible, you need to do some things to try to optimize it and then recheck it again in three to six months. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for that information. And um, yeah, I definitely want to talk to you afterwards about which which labs you you recommend for, for me or for us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that that would be great to do. Um, is there anything else that you want to add to, you know, the conversation around lab work, testing, anything there that we missed? I know it could probably be a whole podcast episode in and of itself, but um, for our listener, you know, she's she or he's usually 25 to 45 um, and, you know, trying to optimize their health. Is there anything that we missed that you're like, OK, got to say this? Yeah. So um, so I have. Uh, my, so my approach to every single person that I see when, I, when I'm working with anti-aging is that we, we have the five pillars of aging well, where we look at five different categories of the body. So we're going to look at inflammation. So there's infl in inflammatory markers that you can get checked. We look at cholesterol or vascular integrity, and that's the advanced cholesterol panel, lipoprotein A, and so on. Then we look at your insulin dynamics, and this is probably important for every single person between 20 and 50. And that would be, we look at not only your glucose, which is your sugar, we measure that three-month level called the A1C. And then you could also look even further, even earlier on in the process, at fasting insulin. Fasting insulin is a really interesting biomarker for longevity. The lower your fasting insulin level is, in my experience, the healthier that you are. Um, it's one of those things that we see get elevated over time before you go on to develop prediabetes and then diabetes. So if you have a family history, if people in your family have diabetes, one of the best things you can do is look at your glucose, your A1C, and that fasting insulin level. And if you do have signs of insulin resistance, then now you'll start to begin 
to understand why it's really hard to lose weight because insulin's a fat fertilizer. And so when you get that test done, first it comes with this video where I'm kind of explaining this so you know you don't have to just hear it one time. You can hear it again. I love for people to look at their lab and then have some sort of resource to try to understand what they're seeing. And then they can go to their doctor and ask better questions. They get better outcomes. So then the other uh, pillar of aging, of course, is nutrition. Super important one. You are what you eat. There are key nutrients that people can check, like vitamin D. 70% of people are deficient in vitamin D. So that'd be nice to know how bad your yours is. We like to push people up between 60 and 100, the reference range. That's the optimal range. Um, most people are less than 30. So we push them up with supplementation. But a lot of good benefits with vitamin D, we think, including improving insulin resistance. And of course, you can get your omega-3 level checked. We sort of talked about that. And many other nutrient levels. And then finally, the last one is hormones. You know, hormones are super important. We can measure fat hormones. We can measure sex hormones. We can measure thyroid hormones. We can measure stress hormones, you know, your cortisol hormones. So there's a lot of really cool things when we approach everything in a five-pillar approach. So that's kind of the full, the full gamut is to look at all those pillars of aging to see how well we're doing in each category and then focus in on whatever category we need to. So most of my patients will do the full five panel category once a year, and then they'll focus their efforts on trying to fix whatever area of aging that is the problem. And then of course you can do genetic testing. We do offer that on our site. If you have a family history of dementia, you might want to consider doing an APOE evaluation to see if you're an elevated risk for dementia. And then MTHFR2 is a good thing to check. You know, we worry about that a little bit because it's responsible for methylation and DNA, the way our DNA works in our body. Um, and so those are two key genetic tests, but we, we do offer others. The bottom line is if you're out there and you're curious about your health and you're interested, we try to make this so that it's super easy for you to access. And you're not just sitting around like upset because your doctor will run a test that you've listened to. You know, I love when people tell me that, hey, I listened to Peter T and he said, get this or that. Well, go get it because you have no there's no barrier to getting it now. You could literally go to, you can go to my site, go to other sites, you just type in yourlabwork.com, you find the test he recommended, and you get the test done. You'll get a lab requisition, you go to the lab, you get the lab results. I love it when people hear information and they take action because I know they're going to get a better health outcome. Mm-hmm. This the whole thing behind COVID was, I wanted a, a really good health outcome, not only for myself, my family, but for everyone. I was super interested in it because I thought, man, w- what can work? And it just seemed like the discussion was being suppressed in a way I'd never seen before. And I'm like, they're saying things that I know are safe. They're saying that they're harmful. They're saying things that you know I know could potentially work, and they're saying don't do it. And it's and, and I know they're doing harmful things. They're sending people home that you know, you know, you're telling them, well, just sorry, you're not sick enough. And they were sick. (laughs) You didn't tell them what to do. You know, I don't know. The suppression of information uh, is sort of of what got us into this whole problem with COVID. And I think in terms of if we can just take a step back, focus in on your own life, like you don't have to be suppressed. You don't have to be limited to what your doctor knows. Okay. Because you got the whole world in front of you. You can listen to whatever podcast you want, listen to whatever medical expert you want or alternative person you want. And now you, there's a way you can get really good, high-quality data, and you can actually look into it yourself, and you can learn, whether from me or from someone else, you can learn some natural things. That's what I focus in on. Natural things, or in some people, they need pharmaceuticals in order to optimize their, you know, whatever is going to happen in their lives, to the longevity part of it. If you do uh, pay attention to your health and you invest in your health, you will get a better outcome. Yeah. 
Yep, absolutely. And that's just makes sense, right? It's common sense. That's, yeah. and it, that's what we talked about all, all day. This, these, these last couple hours is reflect back on challenging times because they're modalities for growth and, mm-hmm. and learning. And, and of course we can, we can resurface some of that frustration as we, we went through it. Sure. But it is, what do we do with this information now? Mm-hmm. And what do we learn from this now? And this is definitely one of those things. It's, it's, as you put it, uh, multiple times throughout this conversation, it's, it's doing the research for yourself and it starts with knowing yourself um, and knowing what's going on and what, what vitality means to you and, and what living healthy means to you and, and the people that are in your, your community. And so yeah. this is just a perfect way to, to, to say like, you know, these are the lessons we've yeah. learned from these last few years. And, and we have such an opportunity, even though it can seem like we don't have much control over things, there is still that we can, uh, a lot that we can do and, and we can turn something that's, you know, a stumbling block into a, into a stepping stone for, for growth. Yeah. You've done that personally. And then, you know, as a collective, we have the chance to do this where we take a difficult circumstance that was the COVID crisis and really alchemize it into a, a, a catalyst for growth and for wisdom such that if this kind of thing ever happens again, we have confidence in our ability to, sort through to reason to use logic to listen to you know multiple voices and to really to learn and that's you know where i want to leave this conversation like yes there is so much that's frustrating and uh you know kind of depressing at some you know in in some in some cases defeating defeating, and if you focus on that you will feel (laughs) you will feel depressed like so many people do and have but I think the key is to focus on, okay, what can we learn from this? And in the future, how will we behave? And that's where I sort of want to tie this in a bow and um, open it up to you if you have any final thoughts that you want to give our listeners on that. No, I just, I, I would agree with you that the, the control that we do have is, is over our own mentality and our own approach. And it's something that I'm, you know, I, of course, I've shared with you my personal struggles and how, you know, how I've had to rethink my love because I really do want to, that's what makes me a good doctor. Honestly, it's not about how smart I am. It's not how much I know. It's actually the amount of true care that I have for my patients. Mm-hmm. And that's that they connect with that. It, and, and that, that does wonderful things for healing. And so that's, that's been my main focus is to make sure that my mindset is good um, for that relationship. And then personally, of course, taking care of my own health, making sure I have the information that I need to be as um, healthy as possible and to take action and things that I that I would not otherwise know of. Um, in my personal situation, I've got bad cholesterol. I have a family history of it. Um, I've got massive diabetes in my family. And the problem with diabetes is you don't see it coming until it's there um, symptomatically. You know, you don't experience anything till you're urinating all the time and your vision gets blurred and you're like, oh, I should get my blood sugar checked. I've, I've diagnosed so many people through the ER because of those symptoms. But they had had probably diabetes for years and years. And even before that, they had insulin resistance. But now we have the technology to intercept disease like we haven't ever had before. And so I teach disease interception. Mm. So I think that if we are proactive about it, we can intercept some of these things before they ever become symptoms and cause the damage that we know comes with them. Yeah, love it. That's true prevention. Where can people get a hold of you? Um, Remind me the website another time for laugh. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it's called yourlabwork.com. Great URL. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And you said you're not really on social media, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I so I do uh, stuff with other people. Like if you were to search my name, Alan Hopkins, you're going to find podcasts like this um, and so on that I've done. I'm just telling you, like I didn't have before I started the online lab company, I didn't have a, a <laughs> even a Facebook or anything like that. I was always afraid because I worked down at a, a, a city hospital and I was afraid. I mean, I took care of some pretty bad dudes. I mean, there's some people in there that killed people and this and that. I'm like, the last thing I want these people to do is find me online, you know. <laughs> But uh, but but it, it became important for me to try to get information out. So because of that, I did podcasts. I've done some you know some other. You'll you, you'll find stuff. Um, if people are truly interested in the educational materials, I want them to email me at a Hopkins. So a is Alan, my first name. So a Hopkins at yourlabbook.com, and just and just tell them, hey, you know, send me the link to any educational information that you have. Um, and we'll send them a link to all the Vimeos about the lab tests if they're curious about that. Yeah. My passion is teaching, okay? It's not in getting people to buy lab tests. You know, that's great, you know, especially if it employs my mom, that's what I do, but I'm not doing it to, you know, that's not my income. My income is in the ER and um, my, that, that has taken care of my mom, which is awesome. And it's given her a purpose. Um, but I want people to be able to access it so they can get information. And I know if they have information, they'll, um, they'll get better health outcomes. Yeah. 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 Love it. Thank you so much for your, your time and sharing your perspective. I know it's not always easy or lovely to go back to those head spaces that um, are defeating, but um, you do it with such grace. And I just honestly just want to take a second to uh, highlight um, how incredible it is that you're using this as a catalyst in your own life to love people better and to learn. And um, I think that that's a really it just speaks to your level of consciousness. And, um, you know, I'm just really grateful that there are doctors like you out there. Same. You, you are a good man, Alan. And I'm so grateful that you are using your voice. Yeah. Um, it is it is healing and inspiring. Well, you guys inspire me. And you inspired me the first time that I heard you guys talking. And I'm sorry to, you know, interrupt your 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 thing, but I'm I'm glad I did. You you had a couple of friends with you as I recall, and you guys were just you were just talking. You were into it. And I was like, these I was telling my wife, I was like, these young kids sitting next to us, they they actually know what they're talking about. This is pretty good stuff. This guy's going off about MCT oil and this and that. And I was like, it's pretty good. Uh, so as the AG doctor, I mean, you were throwing out some bones to me. I was like, I gotta, I gotta introduce myself. I gotta see what these people are about. Like, what are they? I mean, what are they? What are they doing in their lives? So I'm uh, glad that we, yeah, I'm glad that we we met. And you know, if there's anything I can do, obviously for you guys, you know, you let me know. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I have a feeling that this is just the beginning to um, an awesome just friendship relationship, and and if we can help both ships rise together, that's that's our goal. And and you know, give giving space to people like you that need to get their voice out is is really one of our big passions. Um, and I know our listeners really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will get an influx of people ready to test that little P. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they do. I, I love it. Super passionate about lipoprotein A. So so like it's a it's a big it's a really a big deal and you know not enough people know about it and I wish they did because twenty percent of people have it you know and I think I told you maybe I didn't tell you but you know when I first heard about this I was like I got to get my family checked you know because I mean twenty percent is a pretty high number so I checked it and of course I was negative but my wife was positive and I was like oh no my wife's positive what about her parents because you know somebody gave it to her and her dad was positive so there's some steps that you can do when you find out. The, one of the steps we did with him is he went for a coronary calcium score. It's when you lay in a CAT scan and they measure the amount of calcium in your arteries. Zero is normal, 400 is terrible. 
his number was 2,650. Jesus. Yeah. So he, so I talked to this cardiologist, this cardiologist took him for a cath. They found a couple blockages. He went in for a bypass graft, never had a heart attack. Now he has new plumbing. Wow. Wow. There you go. So it's like the preventative power of this is significant if you know about it. If you don't know about it, then, you know, I just don't want you to be one of those people that, you know, have an event, you know, um, and then, and then have to find out. Yeah. 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 No, that, it's, it's very, very important. Thank you again. I know we could talk to you for another two hours, probably. <laughs> and maybe we, we can get you back on at some point in the future to to go in depth even more. Um, I know the, uh, the majority of our conversation was centered around COVID, but, you know, we could bring you back to talk anti-aging anytime. Yeah. And I know our listeners would really resonate with that. I would. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, we would. Absolutely. But thank you again. Thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you guys for listening and hanging out with us. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Check the show notes for all of the links. We, of course, will have them there. Get your LP little A checked ASAP. And uh, if this episode inspired you in any way, if it resonated with you, please send it to someone you love. It really helps get this good information out there. We'll talk to you next time. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.